This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The Scholastic Aptitude Test, or otherwise known as the SAT, originally considered an intelligence test, dates back to the 1920s. Early on, it was used by people like James B. Conant, a president of Harvard from 1933 to 1953, in an effort to find promising students beyond the East Coast prep schools that traditionally sent their grads to the Ivy League. Mr. Conant's goal was to actually decrease the influence of inherited wealth and make sure that the most talented future scientists and civil servants would make it to college. Many experts still defend the use of standardized tests to measure and gauge students and say that tests like the SAT and the ACT are high-quality examples and do a good job of predicting academic success in college. Fast forward a couple generations later, and you see some real holes in those arguments. For example, about 20 teenagers in Great Neck, Long Island, which is known for its high-performing public schools out in the New York area, were implicated in 2011 for a scheme that involved students paying up to $3,600 for their classmates to take the tests for them. Two students involved in the scandal actually declined to be interviewed and pleaded not to have their names resurfaced in light of this week's own scandals. Similarly, but separately, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, the NCAA found that an assistant football coach had sent recruits to testing sites where their scores were altered. Just a few years later, 15 Chinese nationals were charged with giving impersonators fake passports as much as $6,000 to sit for the test. These are regular reports, and even though this week creates a new animated sense of how wealth and how privilege pierces through the veil of the college admissions testing and admissions process, nothing seems to be all that new. But the details of the revelations that wealthy parents allegedly paid a consultant hundreds of thousands of dollars to portray their children as successful athletes, to delay their testing time, to augment their testing time, thus giving all of them a leg up in elite college admissions, They are enticing, and they are delightfully juicy, but underneath all that gossip and the choice anecdotes is this inescapable conclusion that the whole business of being admitted to the best schools in America might actually be corrupt or have its challenges from all the way to the top to all the way to the bottom. This morning, actually two students from Stanford University and USC, as well as Yale and UCLA and other institutions, filed a class action lawsuit over this admissions cheating scandal involving affluent parents, all in an effort to claim that their admissions and their veracity and their tenure at their universities have been marred and undercut by the fact that several faculty and individuals related with the scandals all have interactions with their schools too. So who is to blame? Is this a notion of just parents being stressed out because of the rigor and intensity of the admissions process? Or are tests as developed by James Conant, like the SAT, just too outdated and arcane as a tool to measure performance? Or is there something else going on altogether? This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Joining the podcast today is a special guest and friend of the pod, Eric Rath, the founder of the Rath Education Group, a test prep and tutoring form. Eric's 14 years of tutoring and career engagement spans companies ranging from large corporations to small startups with various roles, such as writing multiple curricula, specifically for the SAT, ACT, and the grad school admissions exam, the GRE, training hundreds of instructors, managing over 75,000 hours of tutoring programs, and personally teaching over 14,000 hours of one-on-one private tutoring all with an eye towards getting into the world's elite colleges, and he hails from a pretty elite one himself, graduating with high honors from UC Berkeley. Eric, thanks for joining the pod, and welcome to American Enough. Thanks for having me, Vikram. Happy to be here. So 
I kind of want to start with just a, a macro level worldview, given your experience um, tutoring students, guiding them and advising them how to approach and get into college. Um, it does seem that for all of the questions around what it means to be upwardly mobile, to have a fair shot and a fighting chance to earn and live and leave your kids a little better off in America, there are a lot of systemic challenges that get cited. You know, there's the cost of wages that one's parents have in their own household. There's health care costs and access to clean water or food that can impact a kid's cognitive development. Even access to housing or safe neighborhoods can, can impact a kid's ability to grow and feel open and, and learn with encouragement. But for all of those different variables, it does seem that routinely access to a quality education registers as the, one of the top determinants of an individual's upward mobility or ability to succeed in America. So with that in mind, it does seem that today there are more colleges than ever before. So you have access to a lot of those different institutions. There are a lot more resources online and in person to find curricula, to test for tests, to prep for tests, to work with tutoring groups like yours. And yet, it kind of feels like it's more difficult now than ever to get accepted to college, and this adds an agony and stress both on students and parents. What's going on right now in America where there is this much angst going on around the admissions process? Great. So it is a fact that there are more colleges than ever. You have different ones opening up, and they kind of rarely close. I mean, there are these nonprofit institutions that you know have a bunch of endowment and tend to uh, you know stick around once they're set up. But it is also more difficult to get into college than ever. And the reason why is because there's about 2,500, 3,000 universities, colleges, like your four-year degree in uh, the U.S. But there's only about 130 that have an admissions rate of under 50%, like that, you know, have any sort of like kind of difficulty of getting into. So every brand name you're thinking of that comes to mind when you're thinking of the Ivy League, Stanford, Berkeley, you know, good on the list, are in that group of 130 that you know, have that admissions rate of lower than 50%. And that's where everyone's applying. So everyone's clamoring to get the brand name because it's about power, not about education or learning. It's about the brand. Because if you just wanted to get an electrical engineering degree, go to the Cal State system, go to the City University of New York system, you know, because those are going to be much better return on investment compared to like tuitions at, you know, a USC or an Ivy League. Um, and you're technically coming out with the same accredited degree. And that's the one thing I really want to sell everyone on today is that if it were truly about just education and learning, you can go to a library and learn about things on your own. You can go to Khan Academy and learn pretty much any course you want. Uh, and if, if you were going for a degree just to get the degree, you can learn about that wherever. But what people want is they want to say, I went to Berkeley. They want to say, I went to Harvard. And very few people follow up with like, well, what'd you major in? Now, to me, if you had someone that, you know, was a physics major or, you know, uh, an engineering major, that's just so much more rigor than someone getting like an American studies or a history degree, which are fine degrees in their own right. But there's just not as much rigor um, or even competition to get into those programs. So for someone just going for that kind of uh, majorless branding degree, you know, it's all about the power of the brand name. And part of seeking that brand name has driven people to, you know, spend a lot in this complex of of tutoring resources, private resources. You know, certainly when, when I prepared for the SAT, there were a bevy of books to choose from. There was, you know, Test Masters, there was Kaplan, there was Princeton Review. Um, and now aspects of that have become even more targeted and even more specialized. And that's not inherently a bad thing. It just means that there are more options out there for individuals that are really looking to learn on their terms. But but these are also options that are, you know, admittedly only accessible by people with a certain amount of resources on their hand. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe from the time you or I took the SAT or admitted to, to college, you know, what, 10, 15 years ago, Jesus, we're old. Um, what has changed about that, that kind of private landscape of tutoring and college admissions counseling? It's worse than you think it is. Uh, and the reason being is that these, like these colleges haven't expanded their spots. So you have a finite amount of spots at all of these top schools 
that everyone's applying for. And so instead of having some level of like college capability that we're, we're trying to achieve, like the student has, you know, a 3.5 GPA, a 3.0, maybe a certain test score is going to get them in. Instead, we're kind of splitting hairs between like the 99th percentile and the 99th percentile. And the way I could kind of convey this is that if you have two students that uh, maybe have, you know, a 1500 and a 1550 on the SAT or a 32 and a 34 on the ACT, those are the exact same students from a capability perspective. One just had a better day than another and got maybe three or four problems uh, correct more than the other did. Because this is about performance, it's not about actual education or capability. And so when people ask what I do and like how I, I work with students, I very rarely teach them any new content. I don't really teach them any new math or, or reading or writing skills. I teach them how to develop a fluency around how to take this test, the tricks and traps that they lay out, and this tricky wording that they don't see anywhere else in their lives. I mean, these tests are designed to try to force them into the median because these tests want to sell themselves to the general public as well as the colleges and say that they're valid. So they've been constructed to, you know, have students distributed in a perfect bell curve, but it's all like forced statistics, if you will. Like it, it's, they, they build these types of tests to look as if they're scientifically valid when really there's so many other factors that go into things like, let's say, the predictive value of the SAT on whether a student will graduate in six years or not. Okay, sure. Like you could say that students that do better on the SAT have better GPAs and better graduation rates. But it's because students who do better on the SAT already have more stable home life. They have wealthier families. They have uh, parents with higher education of level attained. They have greater resources to pay for tutoring. And so you have kind of this false correlation around, oh, if you do well on this, it will prove that. But there's so many other contexts and, and angles that go into a student doing well in the first place that you can't just parse out one particular aspect. But that's how the SAT and ACT try to sell themselves because they're both going for market share against each other. It, it's like this arms race, if you will. And I guess maybe this is the answer to this next question was implicit in your previous point. But you know there are uh, numerous academics out there, including uh, Harvard's. Um, Daniel Cortez, which is uh, who, who's from the Harvard uh, Graduate School of Education, um, who studies testing and has said that, quote, in principle, having a standardized measure is really important. But the problem being faced now is that the measures become so important that people are really trying to, to game that system or undermine its value. And as you said, develop a fluency for the test as opposed to augmenting what they know now with any sort of new appreciation for you know their verbal acumen or their mathematical acumen. Um, is the ACT and the SAT still a valuable metric in determining the potential of a student? And if not, what should the college admissions world be doing about it? The SAT and ACT should be abolished entirely. They have no true predictive value. They are detrimental to students as far as how much they have to study and the stress and, and rigor they have to go through. And if they really truly were about college readiness, then they would have a college readiness threshold and there wouldn't be any difference in score after that. On the ACT, it's out of a 36 scale, uh, like one to 36, and the national average is about a 20. The college readiness level that they talk about is usually at about 25 or so. It changes from test to test, but they'll give you a little check mark saying you're college ready. And uh, if that were the case and a student has college-bound capability in their math, their science, or reading skills, um, then they would achieve that and they'd essentially get a pass-fail. You are college-ready or not. But instead, we start differentiating up that scale from a 25 up to that perfect 36, where a 28 you know, is that much better, a 32 is that much better, and so on. But the level of precision that you have to bring and the amount of time that they restrict you with makes it so this is just kind of like an advanced version of doing times tables in elementary school. You know, they give you a minute, they time you, you have to see how many different multiplication uh, problems you can do in like that minute. Um, it's, it's really just that advanced version of it where the more quickly you can go with maintaining that precision is going to be indicative of your score to where I explain it to students as it's almost like being in a carnival game where you have to balance an egg on a spoon, yet run as fast as you can. You're, you're balancing those... those uh, you know, com competing aspects of, of pace versus precision, 
Um, and, you know, I, I can even tell you personally, like the last time I took the ACT officially, they won't let me take it anymore, but I took it about a year and a half ago and I got a 35 out of the 36. Um, and for example, like there's one uh, English problem that I missed where there's no way I would have ever missed it. I maybe just bubbled it in wrong. Like I understand all the content. I've tutored this for over a decade. It was a comma problem where I just loved it. It was a human error. And yet that drops me a whole point. One question out of 75 on that one section drops me a whole point on that. So, I mean, the level of precision that they're calling for, um, it, it, it's, it's nonsensical. And you have all of these students thinking that, like, this is what makes someone smart or this will be a validation of being smart or it's some type of IQ test. It's not. It's about uh, switching a student to get that maximum performance and then they'll just kind of forget it overnight, anything else that, that's attached to it. Like, no parent ever, like, laments to me, oh, my kid didn't have test prep, so they missed out on, like, a lot of character building. Like, or they didn't get to learn all that comes with test prep. No. It's, it's just a performance metric that you have to train for. As far as the validity of the SAT and ACT, it really has to do with how it's constructed. And this is where my experience writing the test and going into their technical manual, like, talk about every detail of how this is constructed. It really is, a complete, they're, they're completely fake tests in that they send out these surveys to professors and high school uh, teachers to get feedback on what grammatical and reading and writing and math skills do you think students would be best served, you know, being uh, being good in, as they go into college, like, like that they're well-versed in these, these aspects. And then they build problems around those content areas, test these pools of students on it to see, okay, 10% of students get this right, 80% get that right. And then they arrange the difficulty levels into a perfect bell curve. And then even after administering the test, they withhold the test for a while so they can norm that bell curve and kind of smooth it out so that every time they go and present it to the public or to these universities, they can say, oh, see, it fits this perfect population distribution. But if you're constructing it to do that in the first place, it's not reflective. You're not actually analyzing something. You're creating a system where the population is going to be forced into that regard. And then you're smoothing it out thereafter to try to fit your, your selling point that it is valid, but they're, they're just completely fake tests. They don't test anything other than how quickly you can move through a multi-item organization test, uh, you know, with precision. So, I mean, th this is a really good point because uh, the the main takeaway here is that here you have a test that is examining one specific attribute of uh, of an individual. In this case, uh, and based off of your your experience, that aspect is just how fluent you are in the test, not necessarily anything broader around your aptitude. And yet, we also know that there are, are several other variables that colleges like to articulate that they're interested in, including, you know, what are your grades like? What are your extracurricular activities like? What's your growth potential? What do your references say? Um, and, and so there's this whole package of thoughts that um, all students and often parents end up getting very, very fixated on and make investments along the way to, to try and position oneself best to volley an application in for college. Um, and yet, when you think about the FBI indictment we heard about around the nation this week, dubbed as you know, Varsity Blues, we also found that there were instances where people were trying to pay their way into school that you know that, that folks have for generations tried to pay into an endowment by buildings name libraries after themselves i mean in a major way there there's gaming the sat as you laid out quite thoughtfully but there's also sort of gaming this battery of other variables um you know whether it's uh, trying to position yourself as a really awesome soccer player or somebody who's the captain of the debate team. And then, of course, an age-long tradition, I would argue, of trying to buy your way in. Is there anything different about what this scandal unearthed versus what seemingly has been going on for generations? I mean, this is more brazen and it's more uh, wide-reaching. Um, because there's always been people that have donated their way in. I mean, our, you know, uh, first son-in-law currently right now, Jared Kushner, there's a whole book written about how his family donated two and a half million to Harvard and also kind of got a senator to pressure um, Harvard's admissions um, decision to get him in. I mean, his, there's interviews with his, his 
prep school teachers and counselors who were just amazed that he would get in. There's no other way his standards ever would have gotten him in. But what we have to remember is that universities aren't about learning. They're, they're a business. They're there to uphold their reputation, and they're going to do everything they can to do so, whether that's taking students with higher test scores. Um, you know, if they want to make a business decision that they're going to have some pretty deep-pocketed donors um, around for quite a while and that are beholden to them if they let one kid in, to them, one kid out of 2,000 isn't, isn't that big of a deal, especially when they're bringing that much value. Now, someone else might bring the value of, you know, being a student of color or being an Olympic-bound athlete or, you know, being a really popular actress who brings a lot of accolades and reputation to the school. So we have to get away from this idea that it's a meritocracy because it's not. We have to get away from the idea that it's fair because it's not and that it's about learning because it's not. It's about brand. It's about power. It's about reputation, and it's about maintaining and expanding all of this. So, so let me let me dig into that a little bit and just to play devil's advocate and push back on that a bit. I mean, there is still this ethos that the university square is still remains an interesting marketplace of ideas. You know, ranging from. Uh, you know, most recently, you, you mentioned uh, you know this presidency and his son-in-law, but this president actually a few years, a few weeks ago, just called out um, what he claimed to be a very unsafe free speech environment for a conservative student activist on UC Berkeley's campus. All the way to a few years ago, or several years ago, there were protests um, against police department, police enforcement officials at UC Davis's campus. Both instances in California. Similarly, in colleges around the country, you have debates around. This president, you have debates around education reform, you have debates around criminal justice reform. It it seems like the end goal of trying to create a marketplace of ideas and some discourse ought to be what colleges are. And it seems that colleges can still play that role in facilitating a dialogue and perhaps finding one's own creative approach to their own self-expression. Do you think, though, based off of everything you said about how it is still a business and it is run by its a business and the admissions process is still very business-motivated, that that input undercuts the output of being able to be a, a place of, of discourse and debate? I think the place of discourse and debate is a good selling point that we sell ourselves on and, and kind of delude ourselves to believing there's some sort of like positive attribute to, to higher education. Because again, if you wanted to learn these things, you could just go learn them. Like the books are out there. You could study it. Um, and I don't think it's all bad. I mean, I think that public universities are better than private, generally speaking. Um, there's more of a public mission around it. They typically don't charge as much. Um, and I think you can get more of that ideal kind of marketplace of ideas, kind of taking the youth and, uh, you know, getting their, their enthusiasm and, and, uh, you know, the, their freedom of speech and expressing things more. I don't think that that really exists as much. I mean, I think we like to think that it does, you know, the, the idea of the marketplace of ideas. But, um, yeah, I don't think it, it really serves that anymore. Like, I don't think college is doing that. Like, I guess this is what I was going to say more, is that the concept of finding oneself at college or having it as, like, this, you know, transition, sort of, like, cultural touch point, um, like, coming of age, uh, is, is kind of a fairly recent construction. It's kind of like a post-World War II construction because no one ever said like, hey, Johnny, in 1920, like, go find yourself at college. It was just <laughs> always something for like the privileged elite, right? But there was kind of this movement of higher education is, is the, the salvo for all. And so if we can just push everyone into college, everything will be better. And there are, you know, things to be said about it equaling the playing field as far as like more judges are now women or people of color, or, you know, you kind of have a, a more reflective, uh, you know, Congress or, you know, just in positions of power in general by, by opening up access to higher education. But, uh, you know, it, it's not about the idea of like finding oneself or, or having this like kind of marketplace of ideas where like the best ideas went out. Instead, it's more about, um, what sort of power and branding will you be able to attach to your name? And it's kind of shorthand for conferring intelligence or, or rigor or discipline, you know, uh, to other people. Yeah, and that's a that's a good point because that shorthand is something that in in this scandal that that we're talking about, Operation Varsity Blues, um, you kind of ask yourself 
who is really to to blame and and not that we're necessarily out to simply point a finger um, at those that were caught up in this. I think that it, it reveals a lot of of corruption and challenges and as you've laid out um, incorrect performance metrics that we are too caught up as a society and as a nation to fixate on in terms of determining the next you know couple of decades of your adult life. But before we get to some of those systemic challenges, you know you have spent countless hours, thousands of hours with students that are trying to prepare for these tests. And perhaps more fascinatingly, over the arc of your 14-year tutoring career, you've spent a lot of time with the parents themselves, probably seen up close and personal about how both the kids and their guardians end up feeling either stressed or empowered by private tutoring resources, really anxious about their kids' ability to get into school. Can you just walk us through uh, you know how you reflect on the parental interaction when it comes to them investing in the in the programming the the, the counseling the coaching of getting their kids into college and and with a special eye it would be helpful for for our listeners to hear you know when we when we went to college when we applied to college sure our our parents were stressed I, I feel like I was a piece of shit student and so my parents were undoubtedly stressed but now when you have you know, ubiquitous technologies when you have added pressure to start that, you know, uh, standardized education prep much earlier in the the arc of, of being a, you know, elementary school student, even middle school student, all the way to just this this incessant notion that you need to both be the president of your school, the homecoming king or a prom queen, and you also need to be a straight A student. Has that sense of pressure in your mind evolved over the 14 years that you've been doing it? And, and, and what's sort of different in the eyes of a parent today? Yeah, and it's, it's so much worse today. I mean, you have more and more suicides by high school students, even locally here in Corona Del Mar, um, which is right next door to Newport Beach here in California, um, where the scandal kind of broke. Uh, a student at one of the local high schools committed suicide and actually left uh, in the last year or two and left a note talking specifically about how much pressure there was around school and reputation and brand. And I mean, that's an incredibly wealthy small town too. Um, so there's even kind of that fishbowl feel of within that town being even more intense. Um, and you even see like in Palo Alto, there's been reports because there's been so many, uh, you know, suicides up in the Bay Area that you'll have parents taking shifts during finals around railroad tracks to make sure students don't throw themselves on a railroad track. I mean, it is that bad. I mean, these are a quick Google search away. I'm not just making these up. So it has gotten worse, and it has gotten more intense and more pressure-bound. And it's simply because if you took all of the Ivy League schools combined, plus Berkeley, Stanford, and took their entire freshman class, it's not really going to approach more than, like, 30,000 students overall, you know, just, just their freshman class, their incoming class. There's over 30,000 high schools in America. So if you took just the valedictorian from every high school, you've already filled out every spot. And that's not even to mention the salutatorian, who's number two, or even the top 10 students, let alone the 10%. And then you've got to think about all of the international applicants coming in as well. So it, it's gotten more and more difficult to get in to the point where when I spoke about those top 130 schools or so that um, are the brand names that everyone's chasing, every single one of those has a median test score in the 90th percentile or higher. And so it's almost this idea of if you don't have a 4.0 or even more so like a 4.5, and if you don't have like the 90th percentile, which would be about a 1,400 SAT or 30 ACT, you're not even in the, in the discussion. Like they're not even going to look at your application. Yes, you'll always hear about one student that got it. But it's usually some story that's from someone's friends, grandma's, whatever, or there's another angle where they either had donations where they kind of paid their way in or they have an athletic ability or a theater ability or something else that's kind of that angle beyond just the grades. Um, and, and what's really frustrating to families is they work so hard getting all these AP exams done, all these great test scores. They, have a, they work with someone on their application. It's almost like having uh, like someone work on your resume with you, like a job finder person or a recruiter. And after all that, they apply to like 10 or 15 schools and they still don't get it. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. But the idea is, is that's only bought you the ticket, those test scores and the grades. Now it's bought you the ticket to get through that initial threshold. And the reason it's bought you the ticket is that all of these schools report their admission statistics. 
And you know that Harvard is going to have the top admission statistics. Their tests are going to be the, the top. Their GPAs are going to be at the top. And it's because they're incentivized to keep up their own grant. And so you have this whole kind of situation where the students are incentivized to try to go to the best school they can because they've been sold on this branding. The schools want the best students they can. So they're you know, only going to take the top, top students. And also, they're only going to offer admission to certain students because they don't want to mess up their yields, which is like how many students choose to go to their school after they're admitted. So you have this whole enrollment management data game that's going on to where, yes, you could be more qualified in a sense of tests and grades, but that other students getting in because they happen to be that really niche demographic of that ethnicity, that gender, that sport, that even from that state, like Princeton likes to brag that they have a student from every state each year. So if you're that one student from Iowa that gets tagged, congrats. And does that... But it, it, I was just going to say that it, it is that much more difficult, though, to get in because these schools are, are incentivized to have their admissions rate as low as possible, right? Because it, it conveys to the public that it's that much harder to get into, 5% admissions rate, 6% admissions rate, whatever. Um, and so they want to get as many applications as possible so they can reject as many people as possible to make that number as, as small as it can be, that admissions rate. And so think of the marketing that's going into these kids' heads. Like they, they actually think they have a chance at somewhere like Stanford, whose overall incoming class is over 60% full before they even open it up to the general population through things like early decision or legacy or athletes. So it's not 6%. It's even smaller than that. And it's not like you just have a random 6% chance by like, you know, let's say we rolled the dice and, or like played a gambling game and you had a 6% chance. That will come up six times out of 100. But in this case, what it is is you have a 6% chance among all these other people who are all already really qualified. So they're just cherry picking exactly who they want to fill out that class so they can turn around and say, look at how, you know, uh, diverse and well-represented and whatever else they want to say about their class. Um, it is. And by part of that, students have been applying in such greater numbers. And what I mean is like more applications per student. Like when we applied, the typical number was about five. Now it's 15. And so what you have is the same students applying to all the same schools, which bring those admission statistics, uh, like their admissions rates down. But it, there haven't really been a huge increase in the number of students. I mean, there has that are applying, but it's really the effect of more students applying to more schools, making it seem like everything's harder to get into than it really is. So I want to take a quick commercial break, and but when we come back, uh, Eric and I are going to talk a little bit about what this scandal means for uh, public policy in this country, as well as uh, ap appropriate approaches that parents and students can take as they navigate these waters. We'll be right back. Entrepreneurista. A woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done, and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram, with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. Um, so, Eric, one of the more interesting things that came out of this Operation Varsity Blues scandal 
to me was this notion around uh, disabilities in testing. Um, you've made very clear in this discussion kind of your views on the standardized measures used for college admissions. But, you know, insofar as that they're still here means that we ought to have appropriate governance around them. And the Americans with Disabilities Act ensures that individuals with disabilities taking these tests um, have enough time and the opportunity to fairly complete and fairly compete for opportunities in college and grad school that require licensing exam. Um, so, you know, what we hear through the ADA is to do so, administers tests that are accessible to the person with disabilities, uh, offer sufficient time with people with disabilities. And this notion is not that you are less capable. It's that people who are often disabled, uh, not by virtue of anything other than their medical condition, uh, ought to be able to test into a world not built traditionally for them. So now that this cheating scam has actually captured parts of the public imagination, do you see that students with disabilities might be facing heightened barriers to accommodation at the testing site? Possibly. Um, I mean, this has always been a thing in the industry as far as like getting extra time. Um, I kind of compare it to how people would like fake an injury to get um, a medical marijuana license. You know, it's almost like, hey, my back hurts. Okay, here's the prescription. It, it'd be kind of the same thing where if you could find the right ed therapist who can write the prescription essentially or the designation, um, then you get extra time. And I really can't convey how important extra time is to students with this uh, learning accommodations. And even more so, how much of a benefit it is to students who don't need those accommodations but still get it because their parents paid someone off to, like, sign off that they have ADHD or some executive functioning thing. Um, it's pretty rampant among the, the super wealthy, like, getting these types of extra time designations. Um, and it's because partially these, these tests are so time-bound. I mean, that's, that's such a huge component um, to the extent that – you know, you may have a student on science section on the ACT never be able to break, you know, even a 27 or 28 on their score. Yet, if you have them take it un untimed, they'll ace it. It's, it's not that they don't understand it. It's just that it's incredibly rushed um, with how many items they have per question and how you have to organize it. So the difficulty here is that there's power amongst these tests. I mean, you have a 34 on the ACT, it's going to be different than a 30. You have a 1500 on the SAT, it's different than a 1300. So there's always going to be someone trying to scam the system, like these people getting extra time. And it, it is that much more um, disconcerting when, you know, there are students who really need that extra time, who do have learning accommodation sort of uh, needs there. And they probably will have a more difficult path to getting those accommodations. And, and getting them, um, you know, from people like the SAT or ACT, because I, I can't imagine anything but this standard is becoming more stringent. And that that's that's really disheartening because at the end of the day, when you have folks that are really trying their level best or or hoping to plug into a system um, through the means articulated for them. So if you're an incredible athlete taking a path into your uh, your talents being recognized on the field in the arena at a higher ed level, if you are disabled, um, your specific approach to learning being accommodated in a testing environment, or if you are a hardworking low-income individual, a trust in the process and architecture of the university admissions process that maybe they will look to the the challenges that you face in your own community as a way to ensure that you are properly routed into an opportunity that may have otherwise not come to you. All of these approaches are really kind of focused on the sincerity and the um, thoughtfulness and sort of the doing what I can with what I've got mentality that students usually bring to this hustle. Even though it is quite a hustle, this is sort of the authenticity that it seems a student would bring. But in this specific case and this scandal, it, it sort of seems that the parents were taking action uh, upon themselves, doing things. It's unclear from the FBI reports whether students were totally read into it. I think the prevailing assumption is that they were not. So in this case, you know, not necessarily are the students to blame versus the, are the parents to blame, but it does strike me that the parents in this specific outcome are taking, you know, ought to be culpable for, for their actions. But but I guess the broader question is, is there a more appropriate way um, in your experience, having done this for more than a decade, that 
parents can and should prepare for a path to admissions in higher education, specifically when all these social anxieties and kind of gamesmanship and the raw numbers as you laid out just don't tend to work to their advantage? How can we ensure parents are able to do this while taking a deep breath and doing investing in their children with moral clarity as opposed to the, the distress of just prioritizing an acceptance letter above all else and, and undermining that moral clarity? Yeah, it's it's tough because the brands are there and the system does exist. I might not like the test. I might think that college is kind of antiquated as far as like how it's set up or um, you know, the different things that are studied, summer breaks, things like that, you know, even the cost of it, but it still exists. And so it's kind of like, you know, you might not want to have to deal with the Ivy League, but there's still going to be a certain amount of power that, that comes from it. So what I would really say for parents to kind of alleviate the stress of it all is really ask yourself, like, what do you want your outcome to be? Because even having that, you know, fancy degree or anything else isn't really a guarantee. And you're only about 22 when you graduate or so. And so what I'm thinking of is, what do you want your kid to be like at 28 or 35 or 40? You know, how do you want them to be as either a parent or a community leader? And even from like a career, you're probably going to switch careers four or five times at least. So this idea of going to school, studying one thing and having the fixed path thereafter, I think is, is you know, something that disappeared decades ago. Um, and so what I really want parents to ask themselves is, are we going to play this brand name game or are we going to focus on an education and outcomes? Because if you want to play the brand name game, I'm here to get hired. You know, you can hire me to help on the tests. I know a ton of college counselors who will help you uh, focus on which colleges, how to angle yourself, how to kind of write your, your essay. Um, and, you know, it's all generally under the guise of like finding yourself, but I mean, I think that's kind of silly. It's just like, what do you want to brand yourself with? So you have this one game of elite admissions, these top 130 schools, you're going to push it with grades, push it with test scores, and it's still not a guarantee that you'll get in. And even if you get in and graduate, it's still not a guarantee that you'll do well in life. Um, so what I would say is not to like completely ditch the elite schools as much as really diminish their power. They're just the same types of schools. You're going to have the same history classes or the same, you know, math classes. They're all accredited. They all have the same baseline standards. The difference, though, is that you won't have the branding power and you won't have the network. And that's what these parents were buying when they tried to cheat the system is they wanted simply the network and the branding power. If it were about education, again, they could have hired one of our tutors for years on end and still not hit a $500,000 bill. Um, and so for me, with outcomes, that's why I'm such a big proponent of state schools. And um, essentially, like, to me, the best school for someone is getting out of school with no debt. Like, don't go to your dream school and take on $50,000 a year in debt. I mean, you could buy a condo with that, you know, over the four years of it. And so uh, to me, it's like, what do you really want and what really matters in life? Because I really think that the whole branding of colleges is going to continue to fall by the wayside more and more over time because of things like this and people seeing that it isn't really what it's all cracked up to be. But I, I would say the decision is between elite schools and you're going to prepare heavily and go all in or not as elite schools and chill out because you'll be fine. And partially there, remember that idea of the top 130 schools or so all have those test scores in the 90th percentile or higher they're all super competitive. They get the most applications. Well, these other ones, these other 2,000 plus schools out there, they all have admissions rates of over 50%. I mean, they're, they're waiting for you to apply. They want you to go there. They're going to throw money at you, especially if you're like a pretty solid student. So to me, I'd broaden out and get away from the Berkeley, the Stanford, the Dukes, the Syracuse, the, the really every brand name out there, and instead start looking at like, you know, uh, Cal State Sonoma or something like that, where, you know, housing is not as insane as the rest of the Bay Area. You're still going to get a good degree. And again, what's your outcome? What do you really want in general? Like, do you want to be able to brand yourself and say, I went to Yale and just be able to say that at cocktail parties? Or do you want to have enough capital left over from your schooling to go be an entrepreneur? 
And I, I think that what you're speaking to is at the core of this tension uh, in America's identity in terms of what it takes to to grow as an individual, to be uh, you know to be a, a, a decent and dignified uh, contributor member of our society, um, and sort of this false trade-off that unless you uh, brand yourself with your, you know, with the, that designation of Yale or this designation of a top university, unless you can do that, you're sort of discounted along the way. And that is a, an incredibly unfortunate blemish on the, the, concept of the American promise, the concept of the American pursuit right now. And I, I kind of want to close by asking you um, th that that promise is, is, while it feels out of reach for many, in part because of this, this massive disparity in our public education system, it, it, it isn't all informed and it isn't all bleak just because of this FBI investigation. Um, there are numerous public policy tweaks that we could invest in, uh, you know, those in uh, positions of public trust could invest in, you know, our own president, secretary of education could can embark in a in a debate and dis dialogue around the country around. And this, you know, includes various concepts like universal pre-K, making sure that we are investing and resourcing our classrooms, not just with the latest and greatest textbooks, which should just be table stakes, but also the best and latest technologies. Um, so that way students can learn within a 21st century framework, uh, you know, things like like targeting predatory loans that all too often students uh, who do go to college and are, are, are you know, uh, privileged enough to have that experience still remain in debt, trapped in debt for countless years after they exit college. All of these different tweaks to different corners of the system seem like we need to be engaging around and prioritizing full stop. And, and yet, I, I wonder, is even though this storyline under Varsity Blues is rife with intrigue and, you know, gossipy takeaways, um, does it miss the point of teasing out this conversation about core public policies that could redress this inequity? Um, or is this exactly the type of thing that we need to have that conversation in America? I think it, it helps shock the system. You know, it helps wake everybody up to what's really going on. And it also confirms kind of those uh, you know, rumors that we would think like, oh, you know, like even growing up here in Southern California, like USC is kind of been known, like, oh, well, you know, you didn't get into Berkeley or Stanford, so pay your way into USC. And like, we would joke about it, you know, just because it kind of has that, that reputation from over the years. But, um, well, there's obviously some truth to it. And, you know, it, it's tough because I think that there is so much change that needs to happen. Like, I, I think that, you know, even from a broader sort of, uh, you know, educational change perspective, we should do away with the concept of like liberal arts in college. And I'm not saying that liberal arts doesn't have value. I'm saying that should be completed in high school. Like we should have a much more robust, you know, level of high school and even vocational training, college prep training, all of that. So that really universities are just major specialties because this idea of having two extra years of you know, advanced high school, you know, more science or more history or more whatever that you're not really focusing on. It, it's not that it's a bad thing as much as I feel like we could be more efficient with it. And by being more efficient, we would level the playing field where, you know, hopefully elite degrees aren't as far off for people who don't have a ton of money or people can graduate with um, less debt that we need to kind of diminish a lot of the brands as far as, um, you know, those, those faceless or, or sort of like major lists, uh, you know, college degrees of like, well, I just went to Princeton, but majored in whatever. Like, there's no focus on what you you majored in. It's just that you access that network. And part of what I want people to wake up to as well is what we're really judging people on when they say, I went where or, or anywhere. Um, you're judging a student on what they did between ages 14 and 18, when basically everything is out of their control, that they're beholden to whatever resources and experience their own parents have. And so, and, and then they're set for life is it like, you know, you study economics at Yale, and I, I've always said this about like, uh, you know, senators or Congress people that are like, well, I have an economics degree from Yale. Okay, cool. That's from 50 years ago. Like, what books were you even reading then? Like, are you even up to date on theory? Yet we use university and studying there as this like singular stamp that gets to follow someone. I mean, we get to benefit from the birthday stamp for the rest of our lives, you know, being alums from there. And it's nice once you're in, and it's nice to be able to, you know, rest your laurels on that. But what does that even mean to someone? Did they even ask what I studied? Did they ask how well I did? You know, 
No, they just asked whether I graduated or not, or, or whether I got in. But so to vet the general population on, or to sort them more so, based on their circumstances from ages 14 to 18, when they were completely out of their control, they have no maturity, no job experience, no like real goals or focus on like what they want to do in life necessarily, because you just don't have the experience. You're not even sure yet. It's like even dating at that age. Like you have no concept of what dating relationships even really are. Yet you're supposed to choose like, okay, so who do you want to marry and what type of relationship do you want? It's like they, they have no clue. Um, so we're kind of judging students as the worst part of life <laughs> in a way to set up these things. Um, and then we're using it as a singular stamp to the rest of life as far as, well, you went to this brand name and you'll be part of this network and, and power dynamic. Um, and it, it's just so far off from the original goal of what it was going for that hopefully this is like a greater wake-up call, but I do think there needs to be systemic change as well. And I mean, that'd probably be a whole other conversation, but uh, yeah, the current system is quite antiquated and quite uh, detrimental to the majority of students. Eric Rath is founder of the Rath Education Group and uh, has spanned over a decade, almost 14 to 15 years of tutoring, working through the SAT, the ACT, the GRE, and college admissions counseling. Thank you so much for joining today's podcast, Eric. Uh, One sort of closing thought, you are a father. You have a a daughter who is venturing her way throughout the high school system, um, maybe thinking about college down the road one day. What has uh, both your career but also the events of this week taught you about kind of a lesson or just one short message you would want to convey to her as she thinks about kind of the stresses of navigating this aspect of life? None of the brand names or education or schools that you'll end up applying to or, you know, be worried about, uh, none of those will make or break you. They can help. And not getting in may hinder, but they're not going to make or break you. And so whatever it is that you're interested in, there's greater ways to, you know, just go study, find some great mentors and have some people to, who have already been there, you know, business people or otherwise to help mentor and grow and live the life that you want and have the outcome you want, regardless of the school. Eric, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Thanks for having me, Vikram. Happy to be here. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.